Well, good morning. Oh, I'm not, am I on? Yeah, there I am. Hi. Thanks, Laura, for filling in. My name's Lynn Eriks. It's truly my privilege to be up here today, and I'm so ready for it to be done, if I'm honest, right? <laughs> uh, I know a lot of you, having been in discussion groups with you over the years, but there's new faces, too, and I'm so thankful for that. I need to be here. I need to learn from you, from your experiences, from your wisdom. So thanks for being here. We're going to be studying 19.1 through 23.14. It was a long lesson, four and a half chapters. We're going to do our best to get through it. Um, We're not going to read the text verbatim because we don't have time. But you're going to want to have your Bible out. We're going to be looking through it just to, you know, be familiar with what's there, remind ourselves so we're literally all on the same page. Um, Before we dive in, will you pray with me? This is from Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things And give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Amen. Okay, well, in these chapters, these four and a half chapters with lots of detail, Moses prevents various specific laws to the Israelites, which anticipate the very specific circumstances that they'll find themselves in once they enter the promised land. The topics are as wide-ranging as they are very colorful. (laughs) I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but... These laws provide instructions concerning all kinds of things, including covering up your own excrement, cross-dressing, adultery, violence, divorce, virginity and evidence of it, various sexual relationships, castrated men, nocturnal emissions. I literally had to ask my husband what that was. I didn't even know. It is detailed and specific. God doesn't shy away from any part of our lives, does he? But all kidding aside, listen to this list of topics that the laws cover in these chapters. Cities of refuge, legal procedures for criminal acts, guidelines for legal justice, conduct in war, laws related to murder and family dynamics, miscellaneous laws related to the regulation of sexual behavior, stipulations concerning lost property, agricultural guidelines, laws on proper garments, evidence of virginity, and finally, proper posture for entering the assembly of the Lord. And that covers all kinds of specifics. So that is a lot. And no wonder it's taking me so long to formulate a topic here that we're going to talk about. There's so much content. So in light of all of this and these very specific laws, where should we start? Well, first, a general warning that I think bears repeating because When we read this text, we may be tempted to read these laws as an obedience list, right? And think we should follow them. So if you recall way back in um, our second lesson, 
Drew Hunter taught us about the dangers of reading Deuteronomy outside, right, outside the scope of the entire storyline of, of Scripture. So there's really two pitfalls we have to avoid, right? So we could re review this text and be curious just for historical purposes and, and say, oh, that's interesting. Or we could treat it moralistically only and think that these commands are for us, which would result either in pride as we obey, and probably not, right? Or despair as we don't. So we're going to try not to, to do either. We're going to realize these laws are not our covenant, meaning that we're not bound to them, but we're not going to stop there because it is our scripture. So we study, we learn. I learned a lot. We apply truths we can garner from this study. But today, the main truth that I hope to apply when we leave here this morning is, as followers of Christ, when you leave, you want to recommit your reliance on Christ for the strength to purge those things in your life that prevent peace with him. So before we can even begin applying, we're going to tackle this massive passage of scripture. So have your Bible out. We're going to take the thousand foot view and skim through these topics chapter by chapter. And it's going to be a little tedious, but please bear with me. So chapter 19 deals with cities of refuge, property boundaries, and false witnesses. Chapter 20 prescribes conduct during warfare, including what to do with the inhabitants of the cities after having overtaken them. Chapter 21 first details atonement that's required for unsolved murders within the community, and then Moses reverts back to the treatment of female captives that result from war. Then it concludes with familial laws, namely inheritance rights in dealing with a rebellious son, and then the brief mention of the prohibition of leaving a hanged man on a tree. Chapter 22, in my ESV study Bible, the subtitle literally says various laws. That's really helpful. It covers restoring lost property, cross-dressing, leaving a mother bird on her nest, keeping your roof safe when building a home, not mixing your crops together or certain animals together when plowing, and finally, a lot of specific laws on sexual immorality. Chapter 23, or at least through verse 14, deals with specifics on who cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. Okay, like I said, that was a little tedious, but if we force ourselves to go through the process of seeing this overview, it really, I think, emphasizes the specificity that we're dealing with here. And I don't know about you, but when I read through all these laws, what comes to my mind is, why? Why did God set these very specific laws for them? They're so detailed, and I'll confess to you if I'm haphazard with my reading, I may think that these laws are kind of random. Perhaps you felt this way too. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you just marveled at the God of detail that we serve. And that's a perfectly normal reaction, I might add, because obviously God is a detailed God. So why so many specific ones? And the short answer really is that he set these unique laws for the Israelites so that they would utterly, completely, wholly, and I don't mean wholly as God is holy, I mean wholly as in the whole person, wholly devote themselves to Yahweh. God wanted Israel's whole heart and complete love. He told them his desire very clearly in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. You'll recall this was one of our scripture memory verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
every law that's presented that you read in this passage today can ultimately be traced back to that command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Thomas Schreiner, in his book, The King and His Beauty, says it this way. We must constantly remind ourselves that Israel's life under the law reflects the supremacy of and the submission to Yahweh. God does not command us to do something without providing the means for doing so. God, in his grace, provides the law as the means for the Israelites to obey the commandment to love him. Remember last week when Taylor Sutton taught us about how the kings and the priests and the prophets and the judges were the resources that God gave us, that God gave his people so he could then bless them for the good life? Well, in the same way, God provides, indeed commands, these very specific laws as a resource for the Israelites to ultimately love him. As I've read this text over and over again, and ladies, I mean, if you would look at my Bible, you would think this passage is like my favorite part of the Bible. It is worn out. (laughs) I had to read it many times. I found myself writing down purify, purity, peace, restoration, restore, preservation of life. It kept coming up over and over again next to these many laws, and it was really hard. I felt like these concepts were swirling around and trying to get them down to something I could communicate was a lot more difficult than I anticipated. But I really believe that while these laws at face value seem maybe strange sometimes, and then at other times very common sense, for example, if your brother's property is lost and you see it, you should return to him. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. These laws ultimately seek to promote peace through a purging and purification process within the Israelite community as a whole, families, and individual hearts. This theme of peace through purification and purging is what we'll flush out or try to flush out with the remainder of our time together this morning. So first, why is peace required to love God or to be wholly devoted to God? Well, Israel cannot love God with its whole heart, soul, and mind if Israel is not in harmony with God. Israel cannot devote itself completely to the Lord when it, as a community, or in families, or as individuals, are in states of chaos, disarray, and dysfunction that is caused by the sin of its people. Peace, true and utter peace, is not possible when sin separates us from God. God knows this. And he sets forth these specific laws so the Israelites don't sin against him. Let's be sure we're all thinking about the same thing when we say peace. Now, I know not all of you attend this church, but if you do and you were here on Sunday, you may have heard Keith Agoric's lecture. And in his sermon, I thought, oh my goodness, he's really inside my head. He was talking about pruning and peace. A little bit different, but I thought, wow, I could just invite him to speak and I could just sit down and listen. Um... It's so interrelated to what we're talking about, but um, he provided this definition of peace on Sunday as well, but I'm going to expand on it a little bit. Peace is usually defined in terms of the absence of something, the absence of war, contradiction. Listen to these words. Controversy, strife, suffering, angst, anxiety, dissension, distraction, annoyance, violence, commotion, hostility. 
These definitions, the absence of all these things, that's all true, of course, but they're the way that the world would define peace. At the same time, peace is a state of mutual harmony, tranquility, civility, serenity, contentedness, quietness, security. That's the peace of the Bible. That's the peace of the Christian life. On Sunday, Keith defined it as being freedom from fear or worry. How then do these specific laws that we read today promote peace in Israel? Through purging and purification. Did you notice how many times the word purge was mentioned or the purge or the phrase purge all evil? Other translations of the Bible may say remove or put away. Depending on which translation you have, you may have seen it at least eight times. God commands them to purge the evil from their midst so that peace will result. Purification really is implied. You won't see that word as much as you will purge, but it's implied throughout the passage as well. In one sense, the two terms, purge and purify, are synonymous. To purge is to rid of whatever is impure or undesirable, cleanse or purify. So you see how they're so related. Well, let's look at some of the laws in our passage to illustrate these points of how purging and purification promoted peace for the Israelites. And this is not an exhaustive analysis, ladies, on all these laws. You could certainly go back. I know that's like right at the top of your to-do list when you leave here today. But you could go back and you could probably find a lot more examples, but there just really isn't time. So we're just going to touch on a few. So the text begins, we're going to begin, this is where it's really handy to have your Bible out in front of you, um, with 19.1. And this is where the text goes over the instructions on setting up the cities of refuge. The refuge is for the manslayer, the person who has inadvertently killed another person. This is not, this is not the murderer who plotted out to kill someone. This is, um, by and large, an accident, right? So by removing the wrongdoer from the community or purging him from the community, God protects both the wrongdoer and the anticipated avenger. That would be the person who's seeking revenge on behalf of the person who was killed. In doing so, peace in the community is preserved. That's the purpose of these cities. Without them, the avenger would most likely have killed the wrongdoer in a crime with heat of passion, one fueled by anger and revenge. The cities of refuge do not protect people who committed murder, as we see in verses 11 through 13. That says, but if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, and I love that because if you read any law books, it'll be in there, lies in wait. I mean, that's really what it says. It's kind of neat how it gets its language all the way back from Deuteronomy. Attacks him, strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him. You shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Community peace in this instance is achieved through purging, quite literally in this case, by ascribing the death penalty for this murderer. Let's look at another example going down. We're still in chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. Moses goes on to discuss false witnesses. And we've talked a lot about false witnesses already. After inquiring diligently into the falsehood of the testimony, the penalty for a false witness becomes 
what the witness was seeking to exact on his brother. For example, if a witness accused his brother of adultery and this accusation was false, then the false witness would receive the penalty for adultery, death. The end result is again purging evil from their midst. False witnesses do not seek to add to the peace and stability of a community. Out they go. In chapter 20, Moses gives instructions on war. He reminds them with beautiful language, beautiful language. If there was any beautiful language in this text, it was here. Not to be fearful, right, in battle. He specifically tells them in verse 10 that when, in, that when they're entering the cities, they're first to offer peace before engaging in battle. If peace is rejected, they're to kill the men and plunder the women, children, and livestock. Why? Verse 18 tells us why. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. God wants to maintain peace with his people. They can't love God if there are other people trying to tear them away from their God. This should sound very familiar to you. It's similar to when God tells them to destroy the Asherah and the pillars from our lesson last week. The, the reason for that was that so their worship would be kept pure. Moving on to chapter 21. Moses anticipates an entirely new set of facts here. What if there is a man who's been killed and no one knows who killed him? What should you do? Well, guess what? Atonement still must be made for this man. And so God provides atonement through the blood of a heifer. 21.9 says, They purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Through atonement, peace with God is maintained. In 21, we're moving on to chapter 21, 18 through 21. Moses specifies the procedures for dealing with a rebellious son who's described as stubborn, a glutton, and a drunkard. These are not simple acts of rebellion. It's not like you told your son to go brush his teeth and he didn't do it. It's pretty serious. Uh, Peter Craigie, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, says, the kind of behavior that is envisaged in this legislation would be of a various, very serious nature. Whatever the explicit form of that behavior, its implicit threat would be against the security and continuity of the covenant community of God. In other words, the son's behavior was so severe that the effect of it prevents Israel from fulfilling its obligation of obeying the Lord. The son's disobedience, in effect, well, really affected the whole community of God because a stable family was fundamental for a stable community. Has anyone ever wondered why Christians typically care so deeply about the family's stability and integrity? Well, here's an example of this concern way back in Deuteronomy. God cares deeply about the integrity and stability of our families. Look at chapter 22, starting with verse 13. In a very similar fashion to the rebellious son, Moses provides laws that while they all cover different sexual scenarios, they really all boil down to family integrity. Preserving the integrity of the family was vital to the very survival of the community. Israel was not going to exist in a peaceful state with the Lord if its residents went around committing adultery and other various sexual sins. 
As Thompson said in his commentary, great nations in centuries past lost their nationhood in considerable measure because of their unrestrained license in sexual matters. That sounds instructive, doesn't it? Israel's purity very much dependent on the purity of its residents. Okay, one last example. If you read through the first 14 verses of chapter 24, it contains a very specific list of all the people who cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, what's that all about? The assembly of the Lord was called for various purposes, notably for war purposes and for annual feasts. But regardless of the purpose why they called the assembly, worship always occurred. Worship was to be kept pure. And so you can see uh, with all these concerns about purity, why this list of imperfect groups of people were not to enter. I can't help but think about how instructive some of these passages are for us today, kind of hinted on some of them, especially stable families equaling stable communities, family integrity directly, directly affecting the health of the community in which the family is. These are really truths for all times, and we totally could have gone that direction and, and applied it in that way, but that's not what God gave me. Um, so... If you think back, we started out this morning asking why. Why did God have all these specific rules for the Israelites? And the answer was that so that the Israelites would completely devote themselves to the Lord their God. So then the natural progression to our analysis then becomes, what implications does this have for us today? First, we share with the Israelites, don't we, the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because... Jesus specifically confirmed this commandment in Matthew 22:37 and also in Luke 10:27. You may recall hearing those verses many times before. The Matthew passage says, "And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" And he said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind." So, how do we have peace with God? Well, you know that joke from Sunday school that if you don't know the answer, you can just say Jesus and you'd be right? Well, that applies here. Jesus is the answer. Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfully for us, we do not enjoy peace with God by observing and keeping the law given to Israel. That is really good news because we would all fail, wouldn't we? There are so many verses that communicate this truth about peace through Christ. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, For he himself, which is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So Jesus is the means that God provides so we can have peace with God and so that we can fulfill this great commandment that, he, that is for us just as much as it was that for the Israelites to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does this mean that we, as followers of Christ, lead perfectly peaceful lives in our homes, in our communities, in our spheres of influence, friendships, families, workplaces, schools, communities, 
Of course not, and I know you know that. In fact, I confess that I yearn for peace sometimes so much that I end up making it an idol of my heart, a topic we've discussed a lot already this year, right? I don't want my kids to argue and bicker with each other. I don't want strife and disunity to come between anyone and my family. I don't want to experience suffering in the form of a disease or physical pain. These are hard and practical realities of living in the world and within a family. And wanting peace in these circumstances is the peace as defined by the world. It makes me think a little bit more thoughtfully about the term world peace. However, we can still have peace with God despite the difficulties we have in our lives. It's the peace with God that we must concern ourselves with. And we have a role to play in maintaining that peace with God. In fact, it's really a responsibility. Because like Paul said in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, I can't sit back in sin and rage against peace and therefore God blatantly sinning and say, oh well, Christ paid it all. I have peace because Christ is my peace. This is the battle Paul was referring to later in Romans 7.25 when he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As we say, the struggle is real. I find Ephesians 4.31 so instructive here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. When Paul says put away, he's saying purge. Paul is talking about the sins in our life, our very hearts that we must purge. So what do we do? Do we, what do we need to do to purge the evil so that we can enjoy God's peace? I wish I had like a practical how-to, you know, like a three-step process or something that I could tell you and we'd all go home and we'd be in perfect peace and harmony with the Lord. But I don't, you already know that. But God did give me a few points to consider. First, this purging and purification is really an ongoing process of destroying the sin in our lives because as we've already seen today, sin's the ultimate enemy of peace. Having said that, I think we can agree that first, purging's necessary. We need purging. We need to do it. The second thing we need to recognize is that we should not be fearful or reticent to purge the sin in our lives. We can't be fearful or reticent to purge sin in our lives. It's true purging can be painful, but it can also be freeing, can't it? Just think about when you've been in the mood to get rid of things. Maybe you have a junk drawer in your kitchen. Or maybe you went through your kids' closets and weeded out all the things that don't fit them anymore. Or maybe you have that cabinet in your kitchen where, you know, all those lids and bottoms don't match up and it just drives you crazy and you purged them all. Maybe your garage was a mess, your car was a mess, your desk, your file cabinet, it doesn't really matter. But when you were done, when you were done purging, how did you feel? Were, were you accomplished? Did you feel relief? Maybe you would just describe it as feeling really good. Maybe you promised yourself you'd never let it get that bad again. I, I've done that. But it's less about the stuff that's cluttering our lives and more about our time sometimes. 
Maybe our calendars need purging. We don't need to be fearful of this. I'm not saying if we all go home and clean out our closets and our drawers and our desks and our calendars, we're somehow going to enjoy peace, but this physical purging of our junk is just an illustration for the purging we need to do in our messy, messy hearts. We all have messy hearts, right? After all, we've just covered that in one of our lessons already. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. So that brings me to the last point to consider, and that is that purging something we need to do and we don't need to be fearful of doing, it's worth the cost and it's worth the effort. Purging's worth the cost and worth the effort. When we clear out all the messy stuff in our hearts, when we purge, what we're really doing is making room for the Lord to reign in his perfect peace for us. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Doing so is a worthy investment of our efforts. For Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The good news is it's just as much a worthy battle as it is a daily battle. As followers of Christ, we need to recommit our reliance on him for the strength to purge those things in our lives that prevent peace with him. I think Paul sums up this whole analysis in this text rather nicely in both Galatians 3 verses 19 through 22 and then also in Romans 3.20. Listen to what he says there. Why then the law? Isn't that funny that Paul asked that for us? This is what we're asking today. Why the law? It was added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Ladies, our sin is ever before us, for we know we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thankfully, and I, I mean really thankfully, I'm not just saying that flippantly, also ever before us is Christ, who is that much more powerful when we see the gravity and pervasiveness of our sin. It's my prayer that in studying these verses, we lean on Christ's power and Christ's strength as we take on an active role in purging sin in our lives. We recognize our need for purging. We need not be fearful of purging. And we need to remember it's worth the cost and effort. You're dismissed.